Again, if you're able to stand, I would ask you to stand with me as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll just be looking at the first five verses this morning, but I'd like to read down through verse 25 so we kind of set the larger picture of what Paul has to say to this church about tongues and prophecy, and then from it, what principles we can apply to us today. So I think it's important to read the whole section. We'll be spending the next couple weeks, two or three weeks, going through these verses. Um, But verse 1 down to verse 25, Paul writes this uh, to the church here at Corinth. Corinth. He says this, verse 1, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy 
and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the privilege of being able to teach through this book and through this chapter. And I pray as I do so that you would give me clarity of mind, uh, clarity of speech. And I pray that as we think about the idea of spiritual gifts again, that we would be so struck by how you equip people, not for personal edification, um, but to edify the body and, and to lift up the body. And so I pray this morning that that would be uh, our goal, our desire, to see the body edified. I pray that you'd help me as I speak this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Listen closely as I read, okay? As I speak, as I read. Deocaten, agapin, zelote, dea numat mate. Malan deina profetuatan ogorlan glaseok athropes lale ale theos odes gar eko numata de lale mustra ode profetuan anthropos lale okdomun kai periklesen kai permethuen elelan glasia iton okdimai o profetuan ecclesian okdimai Thelo de ponte sumas lelan gloseas melan et inam profetuente maison de a profetan eo lelan gloseas ectos e mai diromion in ecclesia octemon labe. Catch all that? That's Greek to me. That's right. <laughs> Sounds a bit confusing, doesn't it? Now imagine if 20 or 10, or maybe even five people were all standing up at the same time in the same worship service speaking those kinds of words. What would you think? We would say this, welcome to the church of 1 Corinthians. Because that's what was happening. People were standing up speaking in foreign languages. If you were a visitor, how many times would you show up at that church? One of your buddies would say, hey, let's go visit this church over here. And, and you go show up. And when you walk in and you sit down and they announce that church is starting, all these folks stand up and they start babbling in these languages. And you have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what's being said. How often would you go back? <laughs> Not very often, would you? You say, those people are nuts. They're kooky down there. I'm not going to go back there. What I very poorly read to you uh, were the first five verses of this chapter in the Greek language. But you had no idea of that. You couldn't understand it. You couldn't comprehend it. I could have been quoting to you from some juicy love novel for all you knew. You had no idea what was being said to you. Now, if somebody had been standing next to me interpreting while I was speaking those words to you, that would have been a very different story, right? I could have said something, you would have heard of interpretation, and then you would have heard in your own English language 
what is written here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Then you would have said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I get that. Um, but if there was no interpretation happening, then all you heard was a bunch of babble. It didn't really do anything for you. It didn't edify you. It didn't build you up. So here's what I want us to think about and, and concentrate our minds on as we go through this entire chapter over the next several weeks. It's this. Paul's argument in this chapter, Paul's uh, admonition to this church throughout this chapter is he is stressing the importance of the intellect in the life and the worship of God's people. He's stressing the importance of the mind when it comes to worshiping God and to living a life of holiness. Churches and lives that are built strictly on experiences in the end will prove fruitless for the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong with experiences. There's nothing wrong with emotions. In fact, um, just back in February, we had an entire conference where our speaker was talking to us about faith and, and feelings, our emotions, and that God is a God of emotion. God is a God of passion. He loves passionately. He hates sin passionately. Our God is a God of emotion. And we are created to be creatures of emotion. So there's nothing wrong with emotions per se. There's nothing wrong with experiences per se. But emotions that are uninformed by the mind will in the end prove fruitless for the kingdom of God. We need to know the mind must be engaged. And so what matters here, as Paul is talking through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is what matters in our worship and what matters in our life is the faith that we place in Jesus Christ and the loving obedience that flows from that faith. And crucial to that faith is understanding. Because it's understanding of God's word that first brought faith forth in your life, that first allowed you to understand that you were a sinner, that first allowed you to understand that you needed God. And then it's the mind, it's the intellect, it's the understanding that now as you read God's word, you know more and more how to live by God's word. So the mind has to be engaged. We can be emotional about it, we can be excited about it, but we can't turn off our brains. That's what Paul is trying to say here. That's one of the reasons why on Sunday morning our sermon time uh, takes more time in our worship service than any other part. Do you know why? Well, besides the fact that you have a long-winded preacher, why else does the sermon take longer than anything else? It's partly because of this. God deals with us through our understanding, through our minds. Our minds inform so that our will and our hearts can engage. So our minds have to be informed. Songs are important, and we sing a lot of wonderful songs here. But nowhere in the Bible does it ever give us the impression that songs are as important to the Christian life as a right understanding of the Word of God and a heart that's filled with submission to the Word of God. And so we spend more time in preaching than we do in singing. Prayers are important, and we pray a lot in church. We, we pray um, throughout our church services. Um, but you can't even pray right 
unless you know how to pray informed by the word of God. How do I know how to pray for a situation or a person unless I know uh, what God promises and how God acts and and how God deals in in different situations? My mind has to be engaged even while I pray. So um, our preaching uh, is longer than our songs and it's even longer than our prayers because we need to have our minds informed, our minds engaged. And so Paul's central theme throughout this chapter is he's going to be talking to us about engaging the intellect, informing our minds, and then living a life that blossoms from that understanding, that really gains from that. So this was not happening in the Corinthian church. In fact, it was far from it. If you remember back in chapter 12, Paul began to outline some of the spiritual gifts in the church, and he said, you Corinthians have been blessed with every spiritual gift. And here are some of the ones that you have. And he, he lists off all of these uh, descriptions of gifts that he says the Spirit has distributed out among the church. But the, the key verse in chapter 12 was verse 7, and it went like this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why did the Spirit distribute gifts of the Spirit? For the common good. In other words, for the building up of the church. They were were for everybody. Why are believers given gifts in the Spirit? To edify others. To build others up. To be used for common good. Spiritual gifts were never given primarily for one's own personal edification. Now, there are side benefits to having gifts of the Spirit. And those side benefits is that you personally are built up because you profit from having that gift that God has given to you. But that's not its primary purpose. The primary purpose of having a gift was so that you could use it in service to other people. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, things like teaching and helping, administrating, and in the case of the Corinthians healing and tongues and prophecy those gifts were given so that when the church came together collectively they would grow up into a mature and responsible and well-informed body as God intended it to be one person was gifted with one one person was gifted with another one person couldn't do it without everybody else all the gifts were needed so that you had a complete functioning God honoring body but what was happening in this church in the Corinthian church you remember that those that had been given the speaking gifts were taking advantage of those those who had the outfront gifts, the gifts of tongues, the gifts of prophecy, uh, even the gifts of miracles and healings, those kind of showy gifts, those that had been blessed with those were kind of out front of everybody else. And when they gathered together for worship services, there was a sense in which the tongue speakers and the prophecy speakers had this inflated opinion of themselves that they wanted to say, look at me. I'm so wonderful. God has equipped me with this beautiful gift and I want you all to hear what I have to say. There was nothing wrong with tongues. There was nothing wrong with prophecies. 
But the pride that had infiltrated this church caused these guys to stand up and begin speaking all together one at a time in the middle of the church. So Paul had to go on and write chapter 13. And he said, look guys, you can have the greatest of gifts. You can talk in the most wonderful tongues of men. You can even talk in the tongues of angels for all I care. But if you don't have love, love for others, love that wants to see the church built up, love that wants to see others edified, if all you're doing is speaking in this glorious tongue without love, then you have nothing. You're a zero. It doesn't count. Paul says tongues and prophecies are going to pass away. At one point, we won't ever need those things anymore. But love will continue forever and ever. So you've got to major on love. So Paul is presenting this idea of spiritual gifts. He's correcting them in terms of how they were exercising them. And he says, it needs to be done in love. And now here in chapter 14, he's going to return to two gifts in particular, tongues and prophecies. He's going to say, here's the best way to use these speaking gifts in love with a focus on others. And the best way to do that is if there is an emphasis on the intellect. If there's an emphasis on the mind. And the only way, he says, you can inform the mind is if people know what you're saying. You can't just babble. You can't just go on and on in some language with no one there to interpret no one gets it. No one understands it. So you, they got to understand what you're saying for them to be edified and for them to grow up. So let's go through these verses together and we'll see how Paul kind of lays out this argument. Verse 1, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. First, he says, pursue love. That's what the whole last chapter, chapter 13, was about. He says, be passionate about your pursuit of love. Be determined in your striving for love. How does that happen? Well, to be passionate about love is to, first of all, to be passionate about Jesus Christ. To think on him. To study about him. To pray with him. To read about him. To have a relationship with him. It happens as you reflect on the story that we told last week on Easter Sunday. You fall in love with the Savior when you realize that you were a sinner, and that's why Jesus came. That's why we had Easter. You fall in love with him when you realize that he suffered a brutal death in your place. You deserve the punishment. You couldn't build a ladder high enough to reach heaven's gate. So God made a cross strong enough to reach into your heart. That's the beauty of the Easter story. That's the wonder of the Easter story, that Jesus suffered and he died for you. How did the Easter story go? Three days later, he what? He rose again, victorious over sin and death. And now, if we will repent... If we will turn from our sin and we will, by faith, believe in Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. We'll have an everlasting hope of eternity with him. That's what it means when we say, 
pursue love. It means first to pursue Jesus Christ. You understand that he's Lord and he's master of your life. Now, as you pursue that kind of love, you'll inevitably pursue love of individuals. You just can't help it. If you love Jesus, you will inevitably love people around you. It just flows through you and out of you. So when Paul says here, pursue love, he means chase it down, strive for it, exercise love to every person that you meet through Jesus Christ. It's an active verb. And notice what he says. In your pursuit of love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. In other words, it's okay to want the spiritual gifts. It's okay to desire the spiritual gifts. Now, I will point out to you that in verse 1, Paul is talking in a plural context. That word you there, when he says especially that you may prophesy, that word you there is plural. So what Paul is trying to say here is, Don't have a personal yearning for a gift that you want to possess, that you think you ought to have that you don't, like speaking in tongues or or some other gift. Instead, what he's saying is, as a congregation, earnestly desire that the full expression of the gifts of God would be manifest in your presence. As a church, as a body, earnestly desire the gifts. Pray to God that all of the gifts would be manifest, that they would show up, and so that you would be edified in the fullest. That's what Paul is trying to say here. He's not trying to say, if you haven't been given the gift of tongues or prophecy, that you need to just pray and beg God for that. That's not what he's he's uh, indicating. He's simply expressing his wish that they would continue to value all of the gifts and see them as good things. Never once... In this chapter, does Paul say that any of the spiritual gifts are bad? In fact, quite the contrary. Paul says all of the spiritual gifts are good. It's how the Corinthians were using them that were bad. That was the problem. So why does Paul emphasize prophecy here in verse 1? Well, he tells us in the next couple verses. Look at verse 2. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Just as a way of a reminder, gifts of tongues was the gift to be able to speak in a foreign language, it was a real language that was previously unknown to the speaker until he spoke it. In other words, a speaker would stand up, or a person would stand up, a person with the gift of tongues, and he would say something in some language. He didn't know what he was saying, but it was a known language. It could either be interpreted um, over here, or a person in, heard the words in their own native language. That was the gift of tongues. Uh, So in order for the person who was speaking it to even know what he or she said, there had to be somebody there with the gift of interpretation 
to be able to translate, if you will, what was being spoken. That was the gift of tongues. The gift of prophecy, on the other hand, was the direct revelation of God to the people. It was speaking a word of God through the mouth of the prophet to the people. Prophecies were virtually always spoken in the native tongue. In other words, if a prophet stood up and gave a prophecy, you would be able to understand it because it would be in your language. It was not in a foreign language. Prophecies were not normally predictive in nature. In other words, most prophecy did not predict the future. In fact, that word prophecy only became acquainted with predicting the future in the Middle Ages. In the New Testament time, that was not necessarily what the word prophecy meant. It just meant a word from God. Some of it did predict the future, but most of it was for the present. It was for the now. It was to exhort individuals. So what's Paul's point in these couple verses? It's this. If you're going to speak, you would be far better off to speak in a known, common language so that the people could understand you than to speak in some foreign language and not have anybody there to interpret. Paul is assuming here that there's no interpreter going on. He's going to mention interpretation later. For the moment, he's assuming that there's no interpretation. So he's saying, look... You need to speak in a language that people understand because if their mind isn't engaged and you're just standing there babbling, they're getting nothing out of it. They're coming together for a corporate worship service and it's fruitless for their minds. Why is it fruitless for their minds? Well, Paul says in verse 2, he says, someone who does that speaks not to men but to God. Now, you might say, well, well, what's wrong with that? Wouldn't it be great to, to speak to God? Well, of course it would, but here's the deal. Remember that the purpose of spiritual gifts is to edify the body of believers. And so if a person is speaking not to men, in other words, he's speaking in tongues without an interpreter, that misses the purpose of that spiritual gift. He isn't edifying anybody around him. And here's the other reality. God doesn't need to be edified. So if you're not speaking to men, but you're speaking to God, God is already perfect. He doesn't need to be edified. He doesn't need to be exhorted. And so on either hand, speaking in tongues without an interpretation accomplishes nothing. That's his point. But on the other hand, in verse 3, prophecy does accomplish the goal of edification. When you speak in prophecy, people understand that. They respond to that. And the words that they hear give them upbuilding. They give them encouragement. They give them consolation. And you know what is so amazing about that? Is that the word of God still does that for us today. When we read the word of God, we have the written word of God now. And when we read that word of God, it still gives us encouragement, right? It still builds us up, right? There is nothing more encouraging than when you're going through a tough time in life to read the stories of Joseph, read the stories of Job, 
and be amazed at how God says, I've got it all under control. And what men meant for evil, I'm going to use for good. And there's a sense in which you can be encouraged through really hard times knowing God's going to use even this for his good, for his glory, for my good. And it just encourages my heart. That's That's the word of God. There's nothing more consoling then when you read through the Psalms and you hear the psalmist crying out for justice to be done, for right, for wrongs to be made right, for God to correct all of the wrong in the world, and then you see how the psalmist comes around and he says, but I will bless you, Lord. I will give you praise no matter what's going on here and now. That just gives you consolation, just consoles your heart. There's nothing more upbuilding than to read the words of Jesus and how he instructs us to love our neighbor and how to love God. And so when you and I hear the words of God that were once spoken, now written, they have the same effect. They encourage us. They they get us going. The word of God is the most powerful, engaging, life-changing mechanism for growth in faith and holiness, more so than anything else. In this world. And it starts with the mind. It starts with understanding. Now you may have heard it said, and, and oftentimes it is somewhat critically, you'll hear something like this. Well, he's got all kinds of head knowledge, but he has no heart knowledge. And I know what's meant by that. I get that. I know what's meant by that. But listen, friends. If our head is not first tuned in to the living, breathing, active word of God, then there are no tools by which the heart can engage and act upon. It starts with the mind. It starts with the intellect. You get that? As the mind is informed, as the mind is rightly informed, then the heart can respond with a Christ-like attitude because when we engage in that conflict, our mind kicks in and says, well, what does the word of God say? How should I address this? And then that informs the will and the heart how to act, right? If I don't think on the word of God when I encounter a situation, my heart's going to go in all kinds of directions, So I've got to have the head knowledge. Paul in the book of Ephesians says, you want to know how to change and grow? He says, you put off the old self, you renew the mind, and you put on the new self. That's how you change and grow. It's a renewal of the mind. So what's Paul's beef here? What's his deal here in this chapter? Look at verse four. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's actually a double meaning here. Positively, it means this. When a person speaks in a tongue, Paul's saying, positively, it does assure him that he is a believer because he's been given a gift of the Spirit. Right? He, he can speak, uh, presuming that, the, that this isn't a, a false um, enactment, a kind of a, 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 a fake tongue, if you will. They're not making it up. Providing it's a, a true, authentic tongue, 
positively, the person speaking it says, well, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm a believer because God has given me this gift. And God doesn't give that gift to unbelievers. So there is a positive element. On the negative side, though, a person can be built up if he's speaking in tongue because he can be built up in his pride particularly if that gift is a status-conferring kind of activity, and it was in this church. Boy, if you could speak in tongues in this church, you were a somebody. And so in the sense, the negative sense, when a person spoke in a tongue, Paul says, you're building yourself up, (laughs) you're inflating your chest, you're you're becoming something that you shouldn't be, uh, and that's not good. So there's two senses here. But in the end, tongues spoken without interpretation, who is being built up? Only that person, right? Only that one individual. Nobody else is being built up. But Paul says the person who prophesies, he builds up the church. That gift goes far beyond himself That gift goes out to everybody else who hears. And so the prophet was building up and he was encouraging and he was consoling. And so Paul says, prophecy is far superior to tongues because prophecy builds everybody else up. And tongues only builds up that one single person. So prophecy actually carries out its intended purpose. And that is, it's a gift given to an individual to edify the body of Christ. And so Paul says in verse 5, he says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, verse 5 has given preachers fits for years and years. Because verse 5, it says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, right? That's what it says. And so people encounter that verse, and, and, and they say, right there it is. Paul wants everyone to speak in tongues. Well, I would just say it like this. Paul also says in chapter 7, I wish that you were all single. And nobody says, well, yeah, I do, I agree. Everybody should be single. No. Paul uses the word all. He he overemphasizes to make a point. And his point is this. I don't care if you all have the, the gift of speaking in tongues. That wouldn't bother me in the least. He says, I speak in tongues. And if you all have the gift of speaking in tongues, that's great. But I would much prefer that you could all speak in prophecy. If I had to pick between the two, I would much prefer that you all had the gift of prophecy because it is far better for the body than the gift of tongues. Paul's not saying the gift of tongues is bad. After all, it was a gift from God. But he says, unless somebody interprets, it doesn't do its purpose. It's not not edifying. And if a person takes a spiritual gift and uses it to edify himself and no one else, he prostitutes that gift. Because it's meant for everyone else. It's meant to serve others. It's meant to build up the body of Christ. Think about it like this. It's actually the gift of interpretation 
that edifies, not the gift of tongues. Think about that. It's actually the gift of interpretation that edifies because that's when the words were translated into the common language. It wasn't the gift of tongues. So Paul says, you're going after the wrong gift. You're emphasizing the wrong thing. And that's why Paul says, in church, I would rather speak five words that inform the mind, prophecy, than 10,000 in a tongue, and you have no idea what I said. That's how much more beneficial, he says, prophecy is over tongues. I think his point is well taken. I think we can get that. I think we can understand that. Why Paul is de-emphasizing one and emphasizing another. Because he's saying it's for the growth of the body. The growth of the body. Now that's all great and and fine, Sean. I, I understand that. But I thought you said a few weeks ago that tongues and prophecy, that those are gifts that would cease. Those are gifts that would pass away. So what is the point of this chapter for me? (laughs) Why even talk about these two gifts when these are gifts that may or may not even be operative today? What do I take away from this? Well, a couple things. Number one, and primarily this, in the exercise of whatever gifts we have, whatever talents God has given us, whatever um, skills God has blessed us with, every one of those is to be used in preference to others, building up others, encouraging others. We should be looking for ways to build up the body of Christ. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? I mean, when Jesus went to the cross, who did that profit? Did that profit him or did that profit you? It profited us, right? Jesus was willing to lay aside himself to put himself second and to put the body of Christ first and to lift up the body of Christ, right? Isn't that what Paul did in Philippians chapter 1? In Philippians 1, Paul goes through this argument in his head. Fascinating argument. I've used this in in funeral sermons before. Paul goes through this waffling in his mind. He says, you know, I'd I'd really like to be in heaven with Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I, I really need to be here on earth and to be ministering to you. Oh, man, if I could go to heaven. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But you guys really need me here. And in the end, what conclusion does Paul come to? He says, I'm going to stay here because it's more beneficial to you. Yes, I would be personally edified and I would be personally blown away if I went to heaven, but I'm going to give up my preference for you. So Paul says, it's the attitude of Christ that he gave up himself for others. He laid aside his personal benefit for others. Wouldn't it be great if we had that same kind of attitude? Listen, wouldn't it be great that instead of a knee-jerk response to so many things and saying, what's in it for me, we would instead say, what's in it for the people of God? What's in it for the family of God? What decision would be best 
for my church family. Hear me. Inside the church, how will my voting for or voting against, my opinions in favor of or my opinions against, my preference for this or my preference for that, how would those things be impacted if we thought about what would serve the greater body instead of what would benefit just me? you know how different things would be? How wonderful things would be? Or what about outside the church? If we did something like this, how will my saying or not saying, my doing or not doing, my going here or not going here impact the impression that people have on the body of Christ? Wouldn't that be wonderful if we thought like that? How will my saying this impact the impression that people give get of providence and of Christ? How will my going here or going there impact people's impression of what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means, what it says about providence? Wouldn't it be amazing if we thought like that every time we made a decision? And above all else, how will these decisions glorify God? Because what Paul is talking about here is laying aside my own personal benefit and using whatever I have to edify the body. And so how do we do that in our day-to-day decisions? Listen, Jesus Christ was was others-oriented so that he could redeem us from us being self-oriented. So how am I going to display Jesus Christ so that the body of Christ is built up? That's how we can take these five verses and apply them when we walk out of this room this morning. And I trust, I really trust and hope that it's your desire to say, I want the body built up. I want people to have a favorable impression of Jesus Christ. And the last thing I want is for somebody to look at my life and say, well, if he's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. I want you to be known for Jesus Christ and for you to be known to edify others and to build them up. Amen? Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that we would display that kind of attitude Father, it's just as easy for me as it is for any other person in this room to go to Walmart, to go out to eat, to go to my home, and not even think about, am I edifying others? Am I showing others Christ? Or am I doing things for my own benefit? Am I doing things for my own pride? Am I doing things for my own glory? Father, I pray that you would convict me of that, And you would convict us of that. That we would always seek to put others first. That we would always seek to do things that would place others uh, before ourselves. Father, you would be glorified. I pray that when we come together as a, a body of Christ, that primarily we would display love, because that's what you talked about in chapter 13. But even beyond that, whatever gifts you've given to us, whether that's teaching, whether that's 
hospitality, whatever gift you've given to us as a body of believers, I pray that when we walk in these doors, that we'd be quick to use them to encourage one another. That we would encourage growth that we see in each other. That we would uh, praise one another for studying, for for leading fam- their family well, for memorizing scripture, that that would just become uh, the very fabric of this church. And Father, when we leave this building, that built into our DNA would be the love of Christ in such a way that we just look for ways to encourage others, that when people encounter us, they, they enjoy it, they take delight in being around us, And Father, that we have entire conversations building others up and not once mentioning ourselves. Father, that's my desire for me and for this congregation. We love you. We pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.